Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so in today's episode, I wanted to talk about the perspective of being a fresh graduate in the workforce and going out, finding that first job, getting your foot in the door, and that kind of thing. And the reason I wanted to address that is because before Christmas, I was at an alumni event for my Master's of Science in Finance program at UT Austin. We had a a networking event here in Houston back before Christmas, and I had ran into Ryan, who is a more recent graduate of the Master's program. And I found out that he actually happened to be working at Raymond James, which is where I was previously working. So it was a matter of coincidence that we ran into each other at the master's program reunion event, but then that we had both worked at Raymond James, although Ryan's there currently. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me, Dallas. I just thought that was really interesting, uh, that coincidence. I thought it'd be interesting to hear your perspective of recruitment out of the master's program, trying to find a job entering the workforce, but then also starting to work for Raymond James specifically since I was already there and just hearing your perspective of someone going through it now or more recently. I guess just to start, could you give the audience a little bit of background of your schooling and everything leading up to starting work at Raymond James? Yeah, sure. I just want to note ahead of time, disclaimer, that all the views expressed in this podcast by me are my views and my views only and not the views of Raymond James. So... I studied accounting in undergrad, and I went to UT Arlington State School in DFW. I got a job at Deloitte working in their audit practice, and I thought that I liked it, and everything went great until I started the job. And then I realized that it was really boring, that I did not enjoy myself at all, and that's kind of what led me to the Master of Finance program. I wanted to make the transition away from accounting and into a more finance-focused role. Subsequent to the master's program, I eventually landed at Raymond James, like you said, and I'm now working the equity research group out in Houston. I'm really interested to hear the details of recruitment during the master's program, because when I was at UT, the MSF program was in its only its second year. Mm -hmm. So I was only the second class going through the program. Yeah. It's only a one-year program, so it's very quick. And even before day one of classes, they were talking about recruitment yeah. and job hunting and that kind of stuff, which is very intimidating yeah. to even before you even start classes. Yeah. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and just <laughs> like starting into the program and then recruitment for jobs going from day one. Yeah. So just like you said, it's very intimidating to not even be moving to Austin or even thinking about moving to Austin yet. And you're already hearing people tell you about recruiting and how competitive it is. And I very much so had the same, I guess, perspective on it. It was kind of scary to me almost. So day one, as soon as you kind of sign your admissions letter, I guess, they start reaching out to you and saying, you know, the hot industries to work in or to recruit with are investment banking, consulting, uh, equity research, any of those spots, but you have to start recruiting, it seems like six to nine months out. So for me, what that process looked like is I spent, first of all, a lot of time researching the industry and understanding how the interviews worked trying to nail down the different technical aspects of the interviews and whatnot, but it was also a huge networking effort. 
I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn messaging people, just asking if I could get on the phone with them and talk to them. Um, as I'm sure you probably did some of yourself, the networking aspect of it is very exhausting. There's a lot to it. And then the off chance that you do finally get a formal interview, you're also competing against, you know, eight, 10, 12 other people just like yourself. Some come from better school, some come from worse, but they've been through the exact same process as you. In fact, some of them are about to graduate as seniors in undergrad or maybe in one-year master's programs that have had three internships before that in investment banks, whether it's on the banking side or the research teams. And so it's a pretty daunting process. The one thing that was helpful to me was the accounting background. I had a really strong accounting background. My three internships before that were in accounting. So that being kind of the foundation of equity research and investment banking was really helpful to me in the interview process. Yeah, it definitely seems like accounting is one of the skill sets that people don't enjoy going through the process of learning it or doing the work, but having it on the resume does give you a one-up in a lot of employers' eyes. Yeah, without a doubt. One difference that I was interested in hearing about the experience for you when I was in the program, it was only the second year of the program. Mm -hmm. A lot of employers were not familiar with the degree itself. Yeah. So there was a little bit of difficulty for the program in terms of marketing the degree in combination with the employers just not knowing what to expect from potential candidates. Yeah. Therefore, there was a lot more legwork that mm -hmm. the students had to do in terms of getting the foot in the door and also having the companies take them seriously, but then also know how to consider them. Because at the time, it seemed like it, it was a very gray area between whether the employers should consider people with the master's in finance degree as undergrads and how they would hire, recruit people coming out of undergrad yeah. or as MBAs and people coming out of an MBA program. Yeah. Did that change at all? Or was there a little bit more established track for employers? That's actually a really good question with these programs, because you're right. Uh, employers don't really know how to handle a one-year master's program. My situation in particular was a little bit different because I had worked full-time during undergrad and done what they were calling like a name brand internship. I guess I had worked at a big firm before that. Albeit my work experience was very short, I didn't have a lot like a typical MBA, but to answer your question, yeah, the employers were very interested to know details about coursework, how much interaction we had with other students and other faculty members. They wanted to know, is this program structured like an MBA where there's a lot of group work or is it structured more like undergrad where you're going to have a lot more individual assignments? And these were all just kind of questions they asked before you got into the door, got in their good graces with recruiting. So that was another added layer of complexity to the recruiting process. And specifically, whenever you're reaching out to people on LinkedIn, for example, it makes it even harder, I think, because there's no real opportunity for you to sell your personal brand, your personality, how personable you are. You're just writing a message on LinkedIn most of the time. And then they go and they look at your profile and they see that you've got maybe one year's worth of true work experience and you're in this master's program and they don't understand it and they don't have time, so they just kind of push you to the side. But I can say that in the three years or so between your time in the MSF and mine, the program has such a strong alumni base coming out of Texas, as you know, especially in the Houston and Dallas markets in Texas, 
that they were able to establish some pipelines with certain companies. I think Raymond James is a great example of one because you were hired, we had somebody else, and then I was hired after that. So we kind of had a little bit of a line. Yeah. So are you the fourth MSF hire at Raymond James? Do you know? I am the fourth. There was two people out of my class that got hired, you and then one person before me. So I'm paving the way for you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of kind of how these MSF programs and the recruiting process work is the first employer is usually somebody that did their MBA at Texas and they're a strong donor. They're very connected to the alumni base and they reach back out and the school says, hey, we have this new MSF program. Can you help us out? And they start ushering people in for interviews. Hopefully the people that come before you did well, as it seems like you did because they kept coming back. And then they just eventually form somewhat of a pipeline. So what was your game plan while you were in the program? What did you think was going to be the main thing that was going to land you the job? Like the reaching out on LinkedIn, signing up for the interviews when employers were going to be on campus? Like what was the thing that you thought was going to be the thing that landed you the job? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I kind of always thought that for me, it was going to be about getting my foot in the door because I'm never the smartest person in the room, but I can usually interact with people pretty well. As far as how I thought I was going to get my foot in the door, I always kind of thought that it would happen through LinkedIn. My strategy whenever I was going through LinkedIn was to reach out to people that were about my age and form some sort of relationship to them and hope that they could refer me to their boss or their immediate supervisor of some sort so that I could hopefully work up the chain with referrals for an interview. That's ultimately how I thought that it was going to work out. Raymond James in particular showed up and did an info session to the MSF class and I actually just walked up after the info session and just asked for an interview and they gave me an extra spot at the end of the interview process that day and I just got selected. So Raymond James in particular actually had nothing to do with those efforts. It was kind of lucky, but all the efforts leading up to that were kind of what prepared me in going through the mock interviews, talking to people, understanding kind of what they were looking for. So it all played a part, but at the end of the day, I think it kind of just fell in my lap. Just as a follow-on to that, what were some of the things that you think were a complete waste of effort and there was no fruit from your labor? And conversely, what were some of the things that you think really sealed the deal for you? Um, I guess I'll answer the second part first because that one's a little bit easier for me. But I think all the LinkedIn messaging was the best use of my time just because I did actually learn so much from talking to such a, a large amount of people. To kind of put it into perspective, I recruited for approximately nine months before I got the job offer. And I probably messaged between 50 and 75 people a month through LinkedIn. So that adds up to what four or five hundred people or so, just over an eight to nine month time frame. In talking to those people, I learned one about the industry, two what they were kind of looking for in a in a candidate or somebody that would come in and do the job well, and three I did a ton of mock interviews. So whenever I got the real interviews, it was much less stressful, and it really just felt a lot easier because you had kind of gone through it before. The things that I did that I felt were a waste of time were probably cold emailing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That stuff was really tedious. It felt like I was being a pest. I got a very low response rate on it. If I had to guess, probably 5% or less response rate on that. 
it's impersonable. The word pest just kind of describes it for me. Yeah, it just yeah. didn't really feel like I was doing anything. You're just kind of sending an email off into cyberspace. So if I go back in time, I probably wouldn't do any of that. I would agree with that. But then even worse than that is just having to fill out online applications without yes. any kind of warm connection with the yeah, company. I agree. It's especially nowadays that companies seem to have updated their systems so that they have bots that are scanning through resumes and stuff like that and screening yeah. stuff out. But the thing is, they take so much time because they make you upload. You can't just scan your resume in or, or attach a PDF. You have to type in all your personal information, <laughs> all your job yeah. history, yeah, all that stuff every time for each application. And it goes into the ether and is just gone and yeah. a waste of time. Yeah, I agree. It's so tedious. I mean, there's just so many words to describe that and none of them are good. It's funny, though, because you would think in this age of technology that the methodology for getting a job would transition to be much more electronic and impersonal. Mm -hmm. But even though you are mentioning that there's like the LinkedIn connections, which is helpful and didn't quite exist in the past, still there's the strong emphasis on warm connections and networking mm -hmm. and relationships and having a foot in the door that way. Yeah, that actually brings up a good point. At one point during the MSF for me, it felt like some of my quote unquote leads were running dry. So I actually took a trip to Houston and I set up kind of a, a tour of the banks almost kind of thing. And I tried to set up a coffee or literally swing by an office of as many banks in Houston as I could. I was only able to connect with five total banks, but I think that those things are kind of what you have to do. Did you do any ballsy, uninvited knocking on doors? <laughs> I, did, I didn't do any of that, but I did actually have a guy tell me that he would meet me at 2. I think it was 2. Showed up at about 145, 150, and he basically made me wait for like three hours. And I was in Houston. Three hours? Yeah, I mean, I was in Houston, and it was you know a bank that I had really had my eye on. I had talked to this guy numerous times, so I just had it in my head. I was like, if I can just meet this guy, like I just got to meet him. And sure enough, he came down three hours later to tell me that they really didn't have any positions open, and I should check back in a few months. Wow. So that was That's brutal. Yeah. Recruiting can definitely be humbling really fast, but as soon as you land the job, that's it. You know, it's all worth it. That takes me back to when I was coming out of undergrad in 2009. It was a great time to be looking for a job. Oh, yeah. I moved down from Pennsylvania to Atlanta, and I was applying to anything at that mm -hmm. point. And my undergrad was business management, mm -hmm. actually dual degree business management and marketing. So I didn't have the finance specific background at that point in time, but I had already been trading stocks for a few years and really enjoyed that and had wanted to go Wall Street direction, but I had come to the game late. So it mm. wasn't like I was going to get an actual Wall Street job. And even if I had done it right, it was 2009. So Wall Street yeah. was pretty much not an option either way. But there were still these prop trading shops mm -hmm. that were not like the proprietary trading arm of a bank, but just kind of like little partnerships that were started by some traders that had their own money. And then they wanted to hire on traders to trade some of their money and diversify mm -hmm. their trading and that kind of setup. So anyway, there was a prop shop there in Atlanta and I really had my eye on, on that place and I was trying to get my foot in the door there. But of course I had no actual connections. Yeah. 
I guess I had just found who the head trader who was also the recruiter there on their website or whatever. And I had just kept harassing him, basically, <laughs> sending some emails, calling. And eventually, I did just go into their office and just knocked on their door. And it was like a small trading shop. They didn't even have like a reception, basically. Yeah. So I knock on the door and it's locked. It wasn't even open. Eventually, like somebody came by. I don't remember who it was. I acted like I belonged there. I was just like, yeah, I'm here for Dan Bilzor. <laughs> <laughs> they're like okay <laughs> so they go back and apparently find him and like a couple minutes later he comes That's out great. and he's like you emailed me it's like yeah yeah i'm here about <laughs> trading he's like oh wow uh okay sit here I'll, I'll come back in five minutes i was like all right oh, wow and so i like i sat down there in their front reception wherever area and he came back and gave me like an on-the-spot interview wow he was like I'm pretty impressed, but uh, I'm not going to give you a job. <laughs> Basically, you know, like yeah, that, that, yeah. the same story of, you know, we don't have anything right now kind of thing. Yeah. And really trying to like shoot me down, make sure I was humble. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I had to turn down Harvard 3.8 GPAs in this last round. Who do you think you are? <laughs> of course. Of course. Leave all, it to a finance job. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff. Critiquing like anything I said about trading, like really giving it to me pretty harsh. But he was like, you know what? When we have our next round, put your name in the hat and I'll make sure that you're in the shortlist. Wow. So I was excited about that. But then meanwhile, I have to make some money. Yeah. And the next cycle wasn't going to be for five months or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So I ended up having to do door-to-door -door sales, complete commission type jobs at that point in time. It <laughs> was not the Wall Street glamour that you might have hoped for. Those jobs are just so hard to come by, too. Yeah. Like when you have nothing, you know? You're yeah. just trying to reach out to whoever you can. The ironic part of that whole adventure was that once he finally emailed me back that the next cycle starting, you want your name in the hat. And I actually got an offer from Aramco, the Saudi oil company, mm -hmm. to do a supply chain job that was very like non-glamorous, but yeah. like an actual secure salary at that point in time where I had like very little income. Yeah. And I remember actually like reaching out to this recruiter, Dan Bilzor, if you want to look him up. <laughs> <laughs> and traders have had it hard over the last 10, 15 years. Yes. But I remember him even saying that to me at that point in time. This was 2009. He's like, hey, look, if you have an actual salary offer from somewhere, take that. You know? Like, yeah. So I ended up doing that and never going to a trading shop at all. But yeah. it was always in the back of my mind, the glamour and desire but that was completely a pre-Dodd-Frank era, post-Dodd-Frank, that kind of stuff just like doesn't really exist, especially the glamour of trading a bank's capital kind of thing. Yeah. In kind of a harsh way, it's a dying side of the business, especially on the sell side. Yeah. Just between like Dodd-Frank and everything else and just automated algorithms and that kind of stuff it is really squeezing out human trading. Yeah, you're right. It really is for sure. Just to take it back to the actual recruitment process for you, where you are today, if you could go back and give yourself some key tidbits or things that you would tell yourself to do, what would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of the program before you started the recruitment process? For me, I think the, I honestly think the biggest thing is just getting started early. I mean, I mentioned that I started, you know, numerous months ahead of going into the program, but I think that I could have started earlier. It's a game of numbers. There's some luck involved. 
as far as the talking to people, it's uncomfortable and scary at first, but you do it so much through LinkedIn and phone calls that you kind of get used to all that stuff. But the earlier you start in the process, the better your chances are. You just kind of build a case for yourself as far as the numbers go. I was kind of picky at first. I only talked to these banks that I guess you could tell people you worked at and they would know exactly what you did kind of thing. And uh, that's just absolutely not going to work, period. I mean, if that does work, you're, you're one in a million. You have to talk to mom and pop shops that you've never heard of. You have to talk to the big banks if you can. You have to talk to everything in between. And um, again, just starting earlier. Maybe if I had widened my net from the very beginning, maybe I would have gotten an offer earlier and then I could have shopped around. You know, I mean, who knows? But I ended up in a good spot, but there were a lot of people in my class that tried to start recruiting maybe a month before the program started or even a month into the program starting, and they weren't able to get jobs in finance. They had to go either to corporate finance inside of a corporation or to very small shops at best, sometimes (laughs) in between. A little bit snobby there. Don't consider corporate finance finance. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We had a lot of guys that were really interested in going to sell side shops that didn't end up at sell side shops, I guess is what I should have said. But yeah, it's really a game of numbers. Starting early, I think, is the most important part. And you have to be persistent because, you know, like we just kind of talked about, it is so humbling to go through recruiting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm interested what the sentiment was among your class as you went through the program and got towards graduation. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the timing in terms of the percent of my class that had a job offer before graduation. Yeah. I think it was a decent amount, but it wasn't like 100%, especially given that it was only the second year of the program. I remember our program director and some of the other people at UT just trying to encourage us because there were a lot of students that were just like stressed about the process of like, oh, I'm going to graduate and not have a job. Was there a similar sentiment going for your class? What was the timeline for people securing jobs? Our class was kind of funny because I don't remember if oil hit 27 and 16 or if it was late 15, but we were right. Our class started right around when oil was really in the tanker. And a lot of our class, in fact, most of our class coming in was uh, petroleum engineering undergrad majors, and they wanted to go work in either finance or consulting in the energy industry. Energy industry is not iron. You know, they're laying people off, the exact opposite. That's why we had so many petroleum engineers coming in. So we actually had an abnormally high unemployed rate for our class uh, approaching graduation. Typically for the class now, I think they said in the first semester, they usually get 60 to 70% of the people hired, and we were less than 50. And you could tell that the people that were interested in going to work in investment banks were starting to widen their net, not just in which banks they were talking to, but what industries they were looking at. That was kind of the first sign that people were starting to feel that squeeze. And then we had people approaching job opportunities from whatever their undergraduate majors were. Or we actually had a couple of students that went to law school before coming to the MSF, decided they didn't want to be lawyers and went to the MSF, actually go back to law firms and start looking for legal work even. Some were successful, and I think ultimately everybody in our class has gotten hired now, as far as I know. And we're talking how long after graduation? Six months. Yeah. There are a few that I've talked to that just recently got hired, but as far as I know, I think there was probably seven to eight people after graduation that had nothing lined up. 
which works itself out to almost 20% of the program. So that's abnormally high, and I think it's partly due to the energy markets. I don't know if this is just my lackadaisical attitude or a perspective of time, but I think it's a tendency when you're younger and a student, you stress about this test grade, and then you stress about the grade for the semester, and then you stress about getting a job lined up before graduation. And I just think when you look back on it with perspective and time, you think it really wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, that's a really good point. We actually had one kid in our class that uh, he came in day one, did not start recruiting until day one. He wanted to go work in investment banking. And the end of April, a couple of weeks before graduation, still did not have a job lined up. And he was the only person left recruiting exclusively with investment banks. And he got the job he wanted, the bank he wanted, the location he wanted, a lot of it was luck. They had an opportunity come open in the, at the end of April, and a lot of people weren't recruiting investment banking then, so he was the only one at the interview. But he had that same kind of attitude that you're kind of talking about. He was just relaxed about it. You know, He didn't really care for some reason, it seemed like, and he just went about his day, and it worked out. Well, but I'm even adding a layer on top of that to say that even if there are the people that come out and graduate, and Mm -hmm. they don't have a job offer, and it does take three months, or even six months. My point is just, you'll survive, and it's still going to be okay. (laughs) So I'm speaking right now to students who are in programs, and Mm -hmm. saying, it's going to be okay either way. You're going to make it. (laughs) Yeah, and one thing that I did whenever I got really nervous, is I actually went and looked. I always thought, depending on the industry that you're recruiting in, a lot of times they kind of layer you in where you go to school. And so I thought, okay, Harvard is known for being the best school. Even Harvard's MBA program reports their employment statistics six months after graduation, which implies to me that they have students that finish the Harvard MBA program that don't have jobs at graduation. So say what you will about Harvard, not Harvard, or a small state school in DFW, but if a Harvard MBA can survive, I'm sure I can survive. We're both humans. There's nothing different. (laughs) So that was kind of one of the things that I did to settle myself down. Because I made the switch from accounting, I basically went from a stable income, good job to whatever I can find. I kind of did that to de-stress myself a little bit, to say kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Even if it doesn't work out, I will survive. Something will happen. So then has your vision for your career trajectory changed at all? between when you started your master's program to now in the workforce, in equity research, what are you thinking now versus what you thought in the past? Yeah, that's a good question. Whenever I came out of the MSF program, or whenever I entered the MSF program, I mean, I thought I was going to go work at an investment bank for two years, go work in private equity for three years, and then go get an MBA at another school, maybe Texas even, and then come back to the workforce and run a private equity shop one day. And since I got into the workforce, I've realized that I'm learning a lot. And so I've just kind of put a lot of that stuff on hold for the most part. I'm kind of taking it more day by day. And I'm definitely seeing that I need to take time to kind of learn everything that I can. Because what I'm finding out is with technology and with the workforce getting as competitive as it is, taking opportunities in your job to learn, to develop useful skills, and to make yourself valuable 
is probably one of the more important things in your career. And a lot of people do that different ways. Some people do it on the job. Some people do it reading books and teaching themselves. Some people like you go out and do it on their own. It's just kind of the skill sets that you want to develop. But for me, I guess what changed is I had this set plan in mind and now I'm just kind of taking it day by day and trying to learn as much as I can on the job and kind of in everything I do. Yeah, just to speak to the point that you're making about technology shifting the expectations and the way the marketplace is working. Back when I was an undergrad and had developed the interest in Wall Street and even later on once I was at the master's program was the vision of going the hedge fund route and mm-hmm. getting into a hedge fund at some point in time, even running my own fund at some point. But as time went on between, say, 2006 to where we are now, mm-hmm. a lot has changed with technology and technology's interaction with investments. Oh, yeah. And the big thing that's come out is algorithms and automated investing. And now even on the retail side with things like Betterment, the proliferation of ETFs and low-cost index funds and investing and that kind of stuff, even just time just adding to the track record of Vanguard index funds and various ETFs and hedge funds really performing poorly, nonetheless their fees being high, has really contributed to the industry not shooting itself in the foot, but really making it hard for the hedge fund industry to see growth going forward. Because of the headwinds of technology and the proliferation of access to various investments at a low cost to the investor, which really takes away from the allure of hedge funds, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. If they're not delivering alpha (laughs) and they're not giving you access to investments that you couldn't otherwise get to, I really see that as if they're not giving you that access, then it's taken away from the draw of the industry. So the way I saw it is that back then I had the desire to go towards hedge funds and the hedge fund industry, but I really now see it as the sun setting on the industry to a certain extent. And Mm -hmm. not that it's going to completely go away, but it's not growing. I agree. And I think part of it too is that that industry used to be solely accessible to wealthy individuals that were willing to pay a premium for, like you said, alpha. And with that industry becoming accessible, in a strange way, it's almost kind of a supply and demand equation. The supply is so high now because it's so accessible that it's driving that price down and it's driving that allure down, like you said, I think. One last comment about the job thing before we wrap it up. Just to summarize some points that you were speaking to, there is a lot of randomness and luck to the recruitment and job hunting process. But if you put in your maximum effort and reach out in as many ways as you can and try to really establish connections and and warm leads and network, that you can really access the upper end of that luck distribution curve, if you want to call it (laughs) Yeah. I like that. I think, too, it's important for people to know that you will get a job. There were people in my master's program that when they got closer to graduation started saying these things like, oh, I'm going to go sleep on my parents' couch and all this. And it was just them getting down for no reason. You will get a job. Maybe it'll be three months after graduation, maybe nine, but you're going to get a job. If you put the effort, the rewards will come. You will get a job. I think it's important to know that as, you know, somebody graduating and recruiting. 
All right, any last parting thoughts? What I just said is really my parting thought, I think, is that you can't let your confidence slip or your confidence fall at all whenever you're uh, going through recruiting because, you know, like I said, you will get a job. There and are... recruiters are going to pick up on that. If you're going into interviews mm-hmm. with a negative attitude, that shows through your communication to people. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. That's that's exactly right. And it's also important to note that there are stepping stones in a career. Don't think that you're going to get this job and love every aspect of it. And don't think that you're going to get the job that you want when you're 21. That was something that I dealt with at the very beginning of the recruiting process was thinking that I was going to be throwing paper money up in the air and stuff like that if I got a job in finance. So, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's important to just stay positive and remember that there's jobs out there and you'll get one. All right. Thanks, Ryan, for coming on the show and uh, sharing a little bit about your experience and the process of moving from the Masters of Finance program at UT to uh, Raymond James. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dallas. All right, that'll wrap things up for this episode. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast.